Welcome to the closed session, how to get paid in Silicon Valley, with your host, Tom Chavez and Vivek Vidya. Welcome to season four of the closed session podcast. My name is Tom Chavez. And I'm Vivek Vidya. V, this is the beginning of a new season, right? Is it? I think so. Okay. Well, you keep track. I don't. No, you're good at counting. I'm, the math thing is always bewildered and confused me. Yeah, I tried to do this this season, but I think I mixed up the episodes last time I was trying to do this. Right, so. and then we took the keys away. That's right. Yeah, you messed that up badly. That's right. So in this episode, we're going to be getting into the world of Gen AI, which is hot, hot, hot. Mm. I can't pick up the paper these days without reading about it. Online or digital. Everywhere. Or print, I should say. That's right. And we're lucky to have uh, a really thought-provoking, super engaged guest with us today to just chop it up and explore this rich, rich topic. So Alex Kanchevitz, Alex Kanchevitz, please say hi. Hello, welcome. Well, I, oh God, I'm so used to saying welcome. Well, because- <laughs> Great to be here with you guys. <laughs> because your podcast is is uh, way up in the stratosphere. Well, now we get to turn the tables, right? We get to pepper you That's with right. questions. Well, man, it's so great to have you. So Alex is a distinguished writer and journalist who extensively covers the tech industry. Uh, he rolls deep. And we also were just remarking before getting on uh, on the mic here today that we, we kind of knew Alex or were in similar spheres many years back because Alex is an is a ad tech operator and hardcore veteran before you went into, uh, into journalism and writing, right? That's right. I always used to view or still view ad tech as like the crimes and courts of the technology fields. Like when you want to learn how a society works, you go look at the crimes and courts first then you could think about policy and community level involvement and reform. And having started off first as an ad buyer, actually I was in-house ad buyer for a couple of years. And then I moved into sales at operative. I felt like that was really an unbelievable view into the underpinnings of what was then the digital economy, which was largely ad related. And, you know, coming out to San Francisco after that, I got a chance to cover companies like Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and LinkedIn and, and, and Google and see the, see the way that they operated with a focus on the ad business. And I felt like a lot of my counterparts were focused on the policy and that it was skipping a step. Right. I think that when you know what's going on in the crimes and courts, that's when you really understand what's happening inside these companies. And that was very helpful to me. Absolutely. I mean, we, that resonates, Alex, because, you know, we've seen all the crimes and misdemeanors because we were in the boiler room ourselves with mm -hmm. the first two projects, a company called Wrapped and the second one called crux. So, so, uh, crimes, crimes and misdemeanors. I don't know if it's leading to the courts yet, but that's uh, maybe a topic we can kick around here a little bit. I'm fascinated by the journey, right? Cause I don't, I'm trying to think now of anybody who started as a buyer and then an operator and then a very celebrated journalist writer. How did, how'd that happen? Yeah. So it is a very untraditional path. Usually what happens is journalists get into the field idealistic and then they say, Hey, I want to make money. And then they go into ad tech. <laughs> it happened in the opposite way for me. Um, not financially driven. I feel like if I would have stayed uh, selling SaaS software for ad tech startups might've been a you know, much better financial decision, but here's what was happening. So I came out of school in the middle of the financial collapse. Um, had no job out of college, sort of backed my way into an ad buyer position and then moved from there to sales because I wanted to go from the periphery to the core. I wanted to be involved in like the revenue engine mm. and sales was the way to do that. And ad tech 
which is, you know, a, a native New York industry felt like the right place to go. And this was like 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011. The world was changing so fast. Mm. And I had, I mean, I majored in labor relations. So it's not like I was going coming out of school and saying, mm. I want to be a journalist, but mm. I had written a little bit for the college paper. And just having that front row seat to the industry changing was fascinating to me because, and you guys, I'm sure anyone who's been inside a company knows exactly what this is like, where you experience one thing and you see the press doing two things, mm. either A, ignoring it or B, getting it completely wrong. Mm. And that's the position I was in. And I was like, wait a second. Hey, I think I can write. I'm seeing the industry shifting. There's a trade press here that's completely missing what's going on. I want to throw my hat in the ring and start getting some pieces out there and share what I'm seeing. And it was this amazing moment where Twitter was starting to become what it was. And instead of having the traditional path where you have a journalist who goes like to the local paper and then you go work your way up to the state paper, the city paper, and then maybe national, you know, for me, it was completely opposite where I was working in industry, but I could tweet my stories, share them out on the social web. Right. And then they started picking up traction. Mm. And then all of a sudden, I was getting inquiries from the front door saying, hey, could you write this for us? It seems like you understand that ad tech thing. Mm. And the more I did it, the more I realized I'm spending way more time thinking about the next story I'm going to write than the next client I'm going to try to prospect into or close. <laughs> Maybe instead of getting fired, I should try to go ahead and, and push forward on this journalism thing and see where it goes. Oh, so you were writing while you were still at Operative. Well, you guys want to hear a funny story. I've never told this before, and I probably shouldn't. Okay, let's go. <laughs> I was writing basically from the moment I started as an ad buyer. Uh, oh, wow. Because, yeah, I was. I learned, I was working for New York City's Economic Development Corporation, and I learned um, social media marketing. Mm. I just knew that we were going to get a better ROI on Facebook and on LinkedIn than we were doing print ads in like the New York Real Estate Journal. There's no question about it. So mm. I sat in for ad, ad, AdWords classes at NYU School of Continuing Professional Studies, learned a little bit about LinkedIn and Facebook, and again, like saw these new platforms emerge, saw Tumblr emerge, saw what was going on with Twitter, and and uh, and and oh yeah, and Meetup. There was like the New York mm. uh, tech ecosystem was so interesting. So I I started writing basically right away, and. Um, I actually sent this email to a person I wanted to interview and that person was connected in some way to my company and I didn't identify myself as working at the company and they forwarded the email to our comms oh, saying wow. this reporter has reached out to us <laughs> <laughs> and I sent the email during business hours. So <laughs> this is to anybody who's aspiring into go, to about thinking about going into journalism. Don't do it this way. But I was like within an inch of my life getting fired. They decided for some reason to keep me. Um, and then, yeah, then I, then as I moved into the next job, which was at operative, I had a conversation with them because mm. I had to completely put all writing on pause after that incident. Mm. And I had this conversation with operative and uh, I was like, Hey, can I write? They're like, as long as you're not writing about us, about our competitors or for our competitors have at it. And that like gave me the license to go ahead and start saying, okay, I had a little bit of success in the beginning there when I, before I had to, you know, do what I needed to, to keep my job. How else can I start to poke around here? And that's where things really started to, you know, gain momentum. Nice. Well, big ups to Mike Leo 
uh, the CEO of Operative, because I'm sure he had visibility into that. That's a really enlightened thing to do. Because, yeah. you know, yeah. so many companies are so focused on rules and sticking to, you know, useless. What's the harm, right? And now, and now look at what it's turned into. That's, that's an awesome journey. Really great. Yeah, it was very helpful. Very helpful to be able to do that. Very helpful to be able to see inside these companies yeah. at first before doing the bigger stuff. No doubt. Yeah. So one of the things that's uh, kind of happening, and, and you're, you've written about it too, uh, is, as Tom was saying in the, in the beginning, generative AI. And you've been uh, affected somewhat negatively by it, yeah? Uh, in, in terms of uh, Petra at Rationalist trying to take some of, some of your stuff and putting it out as, as their own. What was that experience was like? The, yeah, this was the weirdest situation. So I had written this story basically right after New Year's about how the creator economy was a little bit overblown. Mm. And the story got some pickup and it ended up on TechMeme. And TechMeme will sometimes, for listeners who don't know TechMeme, it's a great aggregator of tech news that you can go to and basically see what's going on in the tech world every day. Highly recommended. I'm there every day. And so the story gets picked up on TechMeme and they list some of the stories that are underneath that that are adjacent to the main story underneath mm. that headline. So there was this story from this Substack publication called The Rationalist that seemed to agree with what I was saying. <laughs> Unfortunately, it didn't just agree with what I was saying. It plagiarized me, but did it in the most interesting way, mm. which is it took my text. This author took my text, ran it through a number of generative AI tools yeah, and had those tools effectively, like you can sell, tell ChatGPT or something like rewrite this, had the tools remix the content yeah. to make it look as if it was completely original and just basically coming to uh, uh, the same conclusions as mine and published it. Mm. And... I was like reading it and was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And then I was like, this, these clauses sound extremely familiar. I'm pretty sure I wrote them. <laughs> and I was looking for the link and there was no link. Yeah. And I went to the comments and I was like, plagiarism is ridiculous. You'll never get ahead this way and posted. And as I'm looking through the comments, I see the author has replied to somebody else saying, uh, these are the generative AI tools that I used to put this together. Yeah. Totally. And I was like, wait a second. So... <laughs> It's not that Generative AI took my work and spit it out and someone took credit for it. It's that someone was able to use this tool yeah. or these tools to take what I had written and extremely easily remix it and post it as their own. And I never would have known if it wasn't for TechMeme. And by the way, their story made it to the front page of Hacker News, yeah. which is always good for thousands of views. And mine didn't. <laughs> and that really annoys me to this day. No, it is irritating, right? Because... And let's, let's use that as a launch point into, you know, a slightly larger conversation about the implications here, right? Because journalists, artists, creators are first in line, right, for, in terms of dealing with all the negative consequences potentially of, of Gen AI. You know, actually just this morning, in fact, I was talking to somebody who wanted me to, or emailing with somebody who wanted me to schedule something. And it's not just Calendly. He has an AI assistant, I know these AI assistants are out there, but they're getting really good, mm. right? So made me think about, okay, how many of these jobs are going to get replaced, supplanted, um, you know, laundered into a mix that nobody can discern later who did what, right? 
So I'm wondering, Alex, if you might kind of share a perspective, like how's, are you net positive, net negative? How are you thinking about the longer term implications? Because that's a, that's a very personal thing that just happened, right? Your name just got lost in the wash, the machine, and then somebody else goes and claims it as their own. Well, this is your, this is your livelihood, right? What do you make yes. of that? It's a great question. And I really do remain bullish that these tools are going to be a force for good. I really do think so. And I've been able to use uh, some generative AI tools to really help the, the presentation of my newsletter, Big Technology. I mean, MidJourney has been a complete revelation to me, mm. right? Like, and this is kind of like the additive effect where I'm a solo creator. So I've been using or had been using like uh, images from uh, the free stock photo or whatever it was. And let me tell you, the top of my post did not look good. And I spent hours trying to find the right image there. And MidJourney is now illustrating all the stuff that I do. And then in terms of generative AI, it's just, it, it, at, right now, if you ask Bing or ChatGPT to write, it's garbage. Like it can write, it can do a form letter very well. But I, almost every story I, I create, I'll like throw it in there and be like, do a better job of this. Mm-hmm. And there might be one or two sentences that it improves, like the definite clunky ones that an editor would rewrite, but almost everything else it makes worse. And there's something to be said about, about this generative AI that like it can take the bottom uh, 50% and raise it up to average, right? So that's actually great news for the bottom 50%. It cannot take the top 50% and make it, you know, the top 1%. Right. It's just, it's just not there yet. And we'll see if it'll ever get there. And that gives me a little bit of hope because I think that like, instead of replacing, it can help refine. And eventually the value of someone that does this as a human is just going to go up. Like we have the ability now to manufacture, and this isn't original, but I'm just going to share it anyway. We have the ability now to manufacture unbelievable pots and different types of artistry with machines. But what does everybody want? They want the handmade vase or uh-huh. the, you know, drawn, the artist drawn photo and that, uh, painting and, and you sign that and it's worth way more. Uh-huh. Right. You know, they, they're so interested in original work. They almost paid for NFTs for you know, five <laughs> months. Well, you know, I, so, that makes a lot of sense to me um, because, you know, I'm a stickler for good writing and I'm not just saying it because you're on the podcast, you're a great writer. It makes total sense to me that the absolute best that ChatGPT can come up with is, is like a poor man's approximation of, of, an, of one of your average paragraphs. However, we work with a lot of people who are not great writers. And so in that sense, it's great to get people who don't like writing to come up with more coherent, I mean, just me crazy when I read sentences that mm-hmm. are ill-formed and don't, don't make any sense. So you know, you're sort of bringing up the average, right? For all the unwashed masses, but then maybe, and the implication of what you're saying is, it, it kind of ups the ante. It, it increases the level of play and the value of creators who can who can ride in that 0.01 percent at the top, which is maybe not a bad thing, right? I mean, it's obviously a good thing. Seems like yeah. So this is uh, this generative AI in some ways. I mean, it does so many different things, but part of what it is is a communication technology, mm-hmm. right? Midjourney and Dolly allow you to express ideas through images and something like ChatGPT and Bing Chat and Bard, um, with the text tools, they can help you write better. In fact, Grammarly, which has been around forever, is like a an essential tool for anyone who's trying to write. It really does help. It taught me things about writing that I didn't know. 
And I do think that like, you know, ultimately your value inside a company is going to be largely based on how you can communicate. And much of the communication in business in particular is done through writing. So if you can bring up that, if you could bring that up uh, through generative AI, that's great. Actually, it makes businesses run better, probably leads to more growth and more jobs. So I'm definitely not on the side of like, this is the end of times. Yeah, Alex, what you said about um, the bottom 50% getting up to average, uh, but the top 50% not being able to get through to the top 1% with help of tools like ChatGPT resonates perfectly in the software arena as well. Because we are told all the time, oh, Copilot will just write all the code for you. And it barely helps a junior engineer become a somewhat capable standard software engineer. Because there's so much left that you still have to do as an engineer to put the code to actually work. So uh, one of the things that also comes up a lot is, are people going to lose, lose their jobs because of generative AI, right? And uh, like you were saying, I think what I, what I heard you say was, the jobs are going to become different. Uh, and you're going to have to learn how to use these tools to, to, do, to, to get better at your jobs. What do you think about all that? Yeah, on average, I think that's correct, that this will lead to growth and lead to more jobs. And on net, we're going to be better. But as with any technological um, disruption, there are going to be people that will lose their jobs mm. without a doubt about it. Um, you know, it's interesting. You meet two types of companies, um, or sometimes it's the same company that says these two different messages out of two sides of its mouth. So one is the company that says we're going to use technology to do whatever we can to be more inventive. And that means basically um, simplifying processes to make more room for employees to invent. And you have other companies that say, yeah, any technological advantage we're going to have, we're going to use it to reduce full-time employees Mm. and just, you know, expand our margins and cut down our cost bases. And, you know, I, I do think that like you, you, in any economy, you'll have companies doing both and it won't be clean. Like it's Mm. not necessarily going to be clean. Even my former employer, BuzzFeed, you know, I'm not saying this is a direct relation, but they started uh, doing more AI content and they closed the BuzzFeed newsroom. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that the AI took the jobs, but I'm saying that if you're an executive, you can think about, well, maybe I can create more customized, personalized content and I don't need the writers anymore. That's right. I don't think that's a good idea, but I can, I understand that there are going to be companies that do that. And we're also like, one of the things that like, I'm curious what you guys think about is like, well, this technology is going to get better. You know, that's mm-hmm. the, the way I describe ChatGPT is how it exists right now. You know, I, I can handle what's going on right now. You know, coders can handle what's going on right now with Copilot. Copilot. But is there going to come a day where you're going to say, hey, like, write this for me and it can do as good of a job as I do? Um, or, you know, Vivek, maybe they'll, they'll code the same way you can code. I'm not, I've learned this year that saying that's never going to happen is not a really good stance. No, There's I, always a probability, and I'm curious where that goes. No, I completely agree with you. I think uh, my position also on that, the potential for this generative AI technology to do amazing things is uh, is, is immense. I think that uh, when we're barely scratching the surface of of this, um, I agree with yeah, you. Can I, I give an example? Yeah, go yeah, for go it. Ahead. Go for it. I was at uh, the Collision 
conference in Toronto last year, about a year ago, or was it Web Summit? I think it was a Web Summit in November. Oh, it was Web Summit in November, right before ChatGPT launched. And I was on stage with Nick Thompson, hmm. who's the CEO of The Atlantic. Yeah. And people can go find us on my YouTube page. You can watch this session. And I was saying that, like, I asked all these questions that are, have now come up with ChatGPT. Who is responsible if somebody uses this and plagiarizes? And we were talking about different fields that, you know, in, in media that might be automated because of it. And I mentioned that eventually you might have a podcast host mm. or a news anchor <laughs> that could get automated. And, you know, Nick was like, that's, you don't really believe that, do you? And all the crowd was like kind of on his side. Yeah. But now those questions are much less, you know, uh, clear cut as they were when we had that conversation. I mean, I sat on YouTube and I watched like a solid half hour of the Joe Rogan podcast with the open AI CEO, Sam Altman. And both of them were AI. It was pretty compelling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that like the, just the, the, the speed at which this stuff is changing can really make our answers today look um, somewhat irrelevant or obsolete. Look, and it's been noted. Next, you know, a few months down the road, which is, you know, it's very interesting and also somewhat concerning. But yeah, to your point, it's been noted that, that things are, are happening fast. It's hard for us because we're in the middle of it to adequately discern the velocity, right? Because what, you know, to your point, Alex, no, no, no. After November 2022, it's a whole new world, right? And that's just a couple of, you know, however many months it's been. I remember when I first read The Singularity, my initial reaction was, okay, just a lot of bullshit. You know, come on. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you read Kurzweil's argument. And then I'm also thinking about our day jobs, Vivek, right? Where 10 years ago, I think we were trying to, you know, we're putting the numbers to this on a whiteboard in the office, like, oh yeah, it's a hundred X improvement. It's a thousand X improvement in storage costs, you know, performance ratios. No, it's more like a million, right? So mm -hmm. we're seeing it in our own personal day, you know, jobs. And then you go to the balcony and you think about, okay, what is this? Of course, we're going to have uh, AI enabled podcast hosts. We're going to have, uh, you know, we have all these tough problems already happening around. Is that machine generated or is that a human, right? Yeah. And I mean, why go far? One of our companies, uh, Alex, we're, we're actually writing AI to test software. It's going to generate tests based on the software you write. And it's, uh, I didn't think that was possible five years ago. Um, you know, and, uh, and you, you asked a good question, which is, will I, just like you describe your ideas to uh, Stable Diffusion or, and it uh, generates images for you, Mid Journey will generate images for you, uh, can will there be a world in the uh, time in the future where I can say I want to build a system that does X, Y, and Z? I want it architected like so, using these technology platforms with this kind of scalability requirements. Please go write all the code for me. Mm -hmm. And right. I think that's possible. Yeah. Um, I think that's possible. Is it possible uh, to for it to be seventy five percent correct right now? Probably not. But 30% correct? 20% correct? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's look, within a decade, it's upon us, right? We're going to be gesturing, gesticulating at whiteboards. We're going to, well, I want a subsystem that kind of takes some of this data and massages it, moves it over here. It's going to be happening. And, and I know we sound like we're high. So for people listening here, totally sober, had a couple, well, I had a couple shots of caffeine, as I usually do. <laughs> but no, I mean, this is, this is not Mundo Biondo stuff anymore. Hey, as a postscript to what you were talking about, Vivek, 
around engineers. And just because I happened to be at a thing yesterday, I talked to a guy. This person said with great certainty that his, he has a 10X engineer who's freaked out because there's a junior engineer who's crawling up his tailpipe doing stuff with Copilot. And that the, the 10X engineer is saying, oh my God, this, mm. this is not, this, this is unsettling me. My initial reaction was, okay, he's probably not a 10X engineer if that's happening, right? If that's happening today. But there's still a, a really important kernel of truth, right? Which is that the ceiling is, is rising, right? Where it's up in the ante to your earlier point, whether it's um, journalism, whether it's code, whether it's software testing, we can go on and on and on. It's it, the, the entire level of play is getting raised and yeah. the velocity at which it's happening is, is still hard for us to comprehend. Yeah, I'm curious to get your perspective on this, Alex, because in the software world, as Tom was saying, right, uh, my, my observation so far is that ChatGPT or generative AI will produce the code for you. But if there's something wrong, there's a bug in the code that it produces and doesn't work properly with the systems that you need integrated with, then that junior engineer just cannot do that, cannot fix that, right? So, uh, so it, how does that kind of manifest itself in other fields, like journalism, for example? Right? Will editors become, uh, will Genii replace editors? Yeah, I don't think it's going to replace editors. Certainly not. There's so much that an editor does that's more than just line editing. Mm. I mean, if AI could replace editors, then Grammarly would have made them obsolete. It's yeah, that yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. But that's just line editing and tightening in the story. It's not uh, contextualization. Yeah. It's not st for an editor... Story judgment and direction is the most important thing. It's just not, it's outside of the journalism field, it, has, it isn't seen because it's a hidden practice. But when an editor sits with a journalist and says, what are you thinking about? And the journalist just spews everything in their notebook. And mm -hmm. the editor who's, you know, working across five different stories and has been doing this for a couple decades says, hey, that little thing that you mentioned, that sounds interesting to me. Why don't you dig into that? Mm. The reporter goes out and finds it. Like, that is journalism. Yeah. That is the job. It has nothing to do with writing, actually. Right. In fact, writing is like the last mile of journalism. Mm. I do, I'm a journalist. I mean, I obviously I podcast and I write. I freaking hate writing. <laughs> I mean, the worst days of my life are like writing days. <laughs> like, yeah. we know in this house, when it's <laughs> Thursday, I write on Thursday, the newsletter goes out Friday. Like Thursdays are like no fly zones. Like, you know, it's just not a good time. And that's why like, you know, this stuff is exciting in some ways to the field of journalism, because if you can get those stories, uh, you know, go out in the field, get the stories and then have the AI assist with the writing. That's actually very exciting. Something that can actually make you a lot better. So I don't really see it as something that can like, you know, is going to make any editor afraid, except if they're handling copy that's been written by ChatGPT and they have to fix it, you know, right. make that gruel yeah. look appetizing. Yeah. But um, it is going to come into other fields. And right now there's been some very interesting applications. So this is a case from um, early, early, late May, early June um, from Ars Technica. They wrote about this. So uh, this is the headline, the, the beginning of the story. A lawyer is in trouble after admitting he used ChatGPT to help write court filings. Yep. That cited that. six non-existent cases invented by the artificial intelligence tool. And the person, 
name is Stephen Schwartz, and he's of the firm Levidow, Levidow, and Overman, which, by the way, is an absolutely amazing law firm name. It's like generative AI would pick Levidow, Levidow, and Overman if you asked it to come up with a, a law firm name. With a yeah. good sense and of humor, too. And he says he greatly regrets having utilized generative artificial intelligence to supplement the legal research performed herein and will never do so in the future <laughs> without absolute verification of its authenticity. So I think we're at this point where like everybody's doing exactly what like, you know, bottom level writers are, or bottom level engineers are, mm-hmm. which is saying, hey, uh, how much better can this technology make me at my job? How mm-hmm. much more productive can it make me? And I'm going to say there are some moments where it really, really can work. It can help in research, like use Bing chat. My goodness, it can really help. Yeah. Um, but like when you start to rely on it for that last mile, so to speak, you're screwed. Yeah. You know, this lawyer is going to be in, first of all, he's going to live in infamy forever for being a, a dummy that did this. Um, but, but second of all, like he's just living proof that in, you know, any profession and you've given the coding example, right? So from, from right brain, to left brain, you know, you're just not going to have this technology necessarily be able to like replace the core work of a function yet. Yeah. Actually, just building on that, uh, we recently announced uh, funding for uh, one of our companies uh, called Boombox, which is a a platform uh, for musicians to collaborate and and, uh, connect and, and earn money from their from their work. Uh, think of it like GitHub for musicians. Um, mm. And as part of that, uh, as part of the product, we've just released a tool called Boombot, which uh, is essentially an assistant and a generative AI-powered assistant that helps musicians create music. So you can say, give me a chord sequence for a new song I'm writing on climate change uh, about and in, in the style of you too, um, and uh, it needs to be a, a, a high energy song or something like that. You can give it prompts like that, and we massage the prompts and then work with ChatGP to to get back chord sequences and 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 help the musician write the song, even lyrics uh, for that matter. That opens up, I mean, it's opened up questions for us around um, intellectual property, and kind of like what what you were when we, we what we were discussing when we started this conversation is. Uh, the question of intellectual property and creative right rights of artists, journalists, uh, etc. So, uh, how do you think about that? Yeah. How do you think uh, technology can play a role? Right. In that? Just just to add to that, because you know, I uh, with our amazing team, I'll just ask village idiot questions like, guys, there has to be a way to sprinkle some bits on this this mu- music that one of our creators is coming up with on the platform, such that we could watermark it somehow, right? So, if it does get washed into the machine. And other other and and a musician has the experience that you had, Alex, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it can be tra- it can be tracked, it can be you know copyrights and ownership can be enforced. We don't know if that's possible yet, but we're we're exploring it. But how do you think about you know to add to what Vivek's getting at here? How do you you know how should we be thinking about intellectual property and creative rights for journalists, content creators, everybody? It's a great question because it does seem like throughout history you know, part of the creative process has been effectively stealing and improving, right? Like 
On my show, we talked a little bit about the Ed Sheeran court case where he got sued by Marvin Gaye's estate for like stealing part of his song yeah. for one of Ed, one of the Ed Sheeran's like great songs. And yes, like, you know, those two little riffs could layer on top of each other fairly seamlessly, but did Ed Sheeran steal the song? Not really. Mm. And it is interesting now that like, yeah, of course, like, Machine learning can do the same and just do it at scale. But I think what's going to come, and we talk about this a lot, what's going to come into play is what sort of data sets are they training on? Yeah. And, you know, if, if I guess like there are going to be efforts to make it practically difficult to just pipe in all of Reddit and pipe in all of Twitter and train on it. Pipe in, imagine the lawyer, by the way, lawyer is a good case to talk about. That lawyer that used ChatGPT and started fabricating cases, like eventually that lawyer is going to be able to use a system that will be trained on the actual corpus of our legal history and be able to cite real cases. That's happening, right? Mm -hmm. And so the question is then, how do we, like, when we build those models, the past history that we train on to get him the accurate case like there's going to be someone who's going to um help work through the rights to those to that case law right you can't just pipe in like a textbook like you need to yeah. work through the people who own own this stuff and that will actually be a part of the value you mm. know uh change so this idea that you can just sort of all-purpose chat gpt your way at least right now you know, to success doesn't seem right. There's going to be specialized bots that are trained with specialized information, potentially using the base that we have now of the GPT models as like a foundation for that conversation. Yeah. So I think that ultimately, like we're going to actually start to be running into some of the walls here that will protect in some ways, copyright owners. So that, that will happen. And in cases where like, you know, if, if I have a competitor that uses ChatGPT to write a story, uh, you know, that's similar to one that I'm writing about a similar topic, you know, I don't really have the option to sit there and bellyache and be yeah. like, well, you know, they're, that's annoying. Like, that shouldn't be legal. No. Like, welcome to the new era of competition. Yeah. I now have to figure out how to beat the machine-enabled right. publication. And by the way, if I can't, then, put me out of business. Right. Because I have no reason to be doing what I'm doing if I can't yeah. beat that. Yeah, because then it's back to your point about the bottom 50% and the top 50%, right? Like the bo the bottom 50% just came up to being average with the help of AI and beat you. So you're average too, like if that if that starts to happen, right? Yeah, time for me to find something else to do. Yeah. Well, on that, on that inspiring and still sobering note. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that was the final word? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go have a really stiff drink now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, man, this was such, such a wide-ranging, interesting conversation. Alex, thanks a million. This was good. This was really great. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, thanks. Until the next episode. All right. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. You can sign up at superset.com. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.